So I want to work through these verses. First of all, noting, drawing attention to the severity of God that we find here. And then secondly, we'll draw out the mercy of God that is displayed here as well. So first of all, the severity of God. After God's initial confrontation with and examination of Adam and Eve in verses 8 to 13, sentence is now pronounced here. Sentence is passed. But he doesn't begin with Adam nor with Eve. He begins, first of all, with the serpent, with Satan. So in verse 14, we read again, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that is, because you have deceived Eve, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It is true that the instrument of Satan, that is the serpent, the animal, the serpent, is made to share here in his judgment. And some have taken from this that serpents at one time prior to this would have walked uprightly. And therefore, they would argue that some rather significant physical change has come about of the serpent here now cast to slither on its belly. Others, however, argue that this is simply assigning new significance to the crawling of the serpent, that it is now a sign of humiliation and degradation. Certainly, we we read back in chapter 3 that the creature that is the serpent was crafty above all other creatures that God had made. And now we're told that this creature, the serpent, is cursed above all other creatures that God has made. To go on one's belly and to eat the dust is not suggesting that the serpent truly now lives off of dust and eats dirt. Rather, this is a descriptive way or a poetic way of describing a despicable and base Existence. Without getting lost down the rabbit trail of what this may or may not have meant for the physical serpent, the creature, we must recognize that the principal focus here is on the devil himself. This curse is primarily aimed at him. And this is assigning to him, as Matthew Henry says, a perpetual reproach. Satan's former glory, if you remember, we read a couple weeks ago from Ezekiel chapter 28. It describes the former glory of Satan. This former glory that was a stunning glory is stripped from him. And he is now assigned here a position of disgust and a lowly existence in which he is a despised and despicable creature. I, I take from this, among other things, that the devil though still possessing certainly a measure of power, he nevertheless lives a miserable existence until his final destruction comes about. To eat or to lick the dust is a sign elsewhere in the Bible of defeat and of humiliation. For example, in Psalm 72, verse 9, there's a prayer for the king. And there we read, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Satan is a proper object of scorn and of contempt whose former glory has been stripped and whose end is destruction. This is cursing him to the defeat of an enemy. Of course, this then 
we see this further in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We will come back to this verse in a bit when we talk about the mercy of God. But notice at least here that this enmity between the, the devil and between the woman and the offspring of the woman ends in the defeat of the devil. It ends in his demise. He will strike out, yes, and there will be enmity, but he will only get the heel, whereas his head is what will be bruised. And, and we'll come back to that, as I said, in a bit. But this is signaling Satan's ultimate defeat, his end. He is cursed to be destroyed under God's judgment, the severity of God. There's no grace here whatsoever for the devil. He is cursed to be destroyed by God. So we'll come back to verse 15 in a bit, but let's move on to verse 16 as God goes to then address Eve. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The consequences here for Eve are twofold, and they both touch on significant aspects of her role. The first is that the pain of childbearing would be increased here, it says. So as Adam and Eve would be fruitful and would multiply as God calls them to do, this would now involve increased, added pain and toil. And so it is that giving birth is simultaneously a tremendous blessing, as Scripture reveals to us, and also the difficulties and the pain of it all are a reminder of the curse of sin. And the second area that's affected here for Eve is her relationship with her husband, namely her marriage. As we saw a few weeks ago, as we looked at the end of chapter 2, Eve was created as a helpmate to Adam. Adam was created, as we saw, as the head of humanity. And Eve was then created from Adam's side and given to him as a helpmate to accomplish the tasks and the work that God had given to Adam. This very order of creation reveals Adam's headship in his home. And of Eve's call to submit to her husband, Adam. This is confirmed to us elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, picks up on this created order as revealing this reality to us. And so this complementarity in which both man and woman are made in the image of God and are man and are created by God in His image and share in the dignity of being created in the image of God and yet are, have distinct roles as God has created them for different purposes, this complementarity is part of God's good creation. It's part of the created order before sin enters into the world. And so submission itself to her husband is not the curse here. Had Adam and Eve continued on in innocence, Eve would have experienced a happy submission to Adam in her task of being his helpmate. What is affected here is the woman's desire. 
Essentially, what this is telling us is that she is now going to resist her station. And she's going to desire a mastery over her husband. So the ESV says, you desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The Hebrew says that your desire shall be toward or for your husband. And the best help, I think, in understanding what does this mean and what is this referring to is found in, in chapter 4, verse 7, where we have the same language being used in a different context. There God tells Cain this. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to, or its desire is for you. Same wording. But you must rule over it. Again, it's the same wording. Their sin's desire, we're told, is to have Cain submit to, to it. Sin is almost personified there as a being that possesses a desire to master Cain. And yet, the correct order there is for Cain to rule over that sin. And so I suggest that the best way to understand chapter 3, verse 16 here is that Eve is going to have a desire to master her husband. That is, she will not have an easy contentment with her station to be his helpmate. And yet, even so, Adam will rule over her, it says. Now that word rule sounds very ominous in our ears, but it doesn't need to be taken in a negative way. Now, this could be suggesting that Adam and husbands in general will now rule harshly. Certainly, we know that that happens. And we affirm that that is not God's design and that that is not good. That is sin in itself. But the word rule doesn't necessarily imply tyranny as we might assume it does. It is used elsewhere in Scripture, simply to speak of governing. It can refer to just a benevolent governance. So this might suggest that Adam will be harsh in his rule, but it is more clearly stating, in light of chapter 4, its use with Cain there and sin, that the woman's desire is now going to involve resistance to being a helpmate. And yet, even so, the order here is not going to be reversed by God. The order that he has established in creation, that man, the husband, is to be the head of his home, that, that's going to remain even though he also is now sinful and it won't be anywhere near a perfect headship. And so tension is introduced here into marriage as part of the curse. The severity of God is seen in that the most intimate relationship that we know on this earth between human beings, the one flesh union of a husband and wife, is now affected and strained because of sin. Certainly, as we think of the New Testament's instruction about marriage and Christian marriage, we see the ideal put forth. And we work to restore a right and loving order in the home in which the husband is called in Ephesians 5 to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And the wife is called to submit to her husband as the 
church submits to Christ. And yet even so, even in such a home, sin remains. And the curse is not totally done away with in us. And we continue to feel its effects effects even in our marriages. And so to ladies who are married, the struggle to submit to your husbands peaceably is part of the curse. And even though your husbands are going to be very far from perfect, this is still God's design, as seen in Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, and even right here. In verse 17, God turns to Adam now. In verse 17, we read, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the realm in which Adam is to carry out his labor and his work is now cursed, with the result that in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The sentence of death that God promised is being confirmed here as Adam has eaten the fruit. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, and he shall return again one day to the dust. But it's going to be something of a dragged out process, we find out. Man will have a lifelong struggle for survival to gain and obtain his bread by toil and sweat and hard work. And then at the end of it all, it's going to eventually give way still to death. The good creation that God established as he spoke creation into being and as we've seen him create and and then create man and set man in the garden and the fruit trees that were created there for Adam and Eve to eat and the goodness of everything that he had made, the good orderliness of it all, this good creation of God now becomes here an Ecclesiastes world. If you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, it speaks of the vanity that so much of what we're doing and trying to carry out is like chasing the wind. It's like trying to grab on to the wind. We just can't do it. You, you try to, you think you've got it, and then it's gone. Ecclesiastes 1.8 captures the painful toil of life in a post-fall world. There the lament is, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. We remember work was given before the fall. We have, we have seen this. Adam was given work to accomplish. Work itself is not bad. That is not the curse. But rather now, that work will become painful. It will become toilsome. As the earth itself comes under the curse of God, it becomes painful toil. We survive by sweat and hard work until eventually we die anyways. This is speaking here of the task of bringing food forth from the ground, which was formerly available prior to even cultivation. Again, God created many trees that were beautiful and good for fruit for Adam and Eve to simply go eat. 
We should see this cursing rightly applying to all types of work, not just to farming. We work so that we may eat, so that we may survive, even if we get a paycheck and then go buy that food from a store. And vanity and weariness enters into all of it. Our labor is relentless. You work hard and you get paid, and then what's next? Back to work. We have to keep going. We can't let up. You can work very hard and you can see very little come of it. Those who work the land see this very acutely as thorns and pestilence destroy hard work. And we work hard to reduce that and make up for it. And then there's no rain. The entrance of sin into the world is felt very acutely in the struggle to make ends meet and the relentless struggle to survive and to feed ourselves and those within our care. And then, inevitably, it must give way in the end still to death. This is no small punishment upon us. It reveals the severity of God. And again, if you remember back, it was just a couple summers ago that we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a book that is trying to just, it's grappling very honestly and deeply with this very struggle, with life in the curse, under the curse. We are blessed to live in a time when we have many things that help us ease some of the pain of this. We can go to the store and buy food. But even so, we have not stepped out from under this battle altogether. The weariness of our labor is a reminder of sin and of the curse. In verses 20 and 21, moving on, Adam names Eve and then God gives them garments of skins. And we're going to come back to that. But look at verse 22, where we see further devastating effects of Adam's sin. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So you remember the serpent's temptation. His word has now come true partly. Adam and Eve have rebelled. They've gone their own way in rivalry to God. And the plural here where it says, like one of us, is similar to chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, let us make man in our own image. These are not fully developed but they are references to our triune God. God is declaring man's rivalry to him now. And on the basis of this and this sin, the next act of judgment falls. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that's kind of just left hanging there for us as if we're to fill in how terrible that would be if sinners now just lived forever. Verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam is blocked now from the tree of life. Gone is the possibility of reward for Adam's obedience. Gone is his chance at entering into a greater glory by maintaining his state of innocence. 
In its place, rather now, he is expelled from the garden to go about his cursed labor. Verse 24 states it emphatically. It says he, uh, he, he drove out the man. Further, what's ruptured in all of this is the prior sweet communion between mankind and their creator. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the cherubim. They are angels, and they are revealed to us in Scripture as guardians of God's presence. If you recall, we discussed this uh, in, in the Holy of Holies, in the, the tabernacle, and then the, the, the temple. There were two enormous cherubim standing over you. If you were a priest, a high priest going into this place, you could not have missed this. They were giant, made of wood, but overlaid with gold. One wing of one touched the wing of the other, and their two outside wings touched the outside walls, covering the whole thing. And then the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant was overshadowed by two more cherubim. And the curtain that you would enter into that place was also embroidered with these cherubim. And here with flaming swords, they guard the way to the inner sanctuary of Eden, where the tree of life is, and where communion with God was known. We have all been born into a fallen world. And this is all that we have known, life under the curse. So it's hard for us, I think, to probably imagine just how devastating this whole experience would have been for Adam and for Eve. To go from the joys of Eden with all of its perfections, and its perfect communion with God to now a sinner's existence. I would suggest it would have bordered on crushing. We overuse words like devastating and crushing, but truly this would have been. And we are, we are not told here Adam and Eve's inner feelings about all of this or their thoughts, but we do see that the world continues to groan on and we all live under the experience of this curse. It is harsh. But we are sinners. And God is holy. And it is his just judgment upon this world. By nature we are children of wrath. Alienated in mind and hostile to God Almighty our Creator. And the one act of Adam. Something that most people would dismiss as not really a big deal that he ate this fruit. It seems, maybe to some, a minor disobedience. But it brings about all of this for Adam and for all of Adam's posterity. This is the severity of sin against Almighty God. Mankind needs to understand this. That this is no trifling matter. That God's holiness is serious. That sin is no joke and it's certainly not a dismissive matter. Even something that might seem small and not a big deal. We see the severity of God and the curse of sin. All are indeed exposed before the eyes of God Almighty. And yet, even in these verses, even as God is pronouncing this curse, even though it is severe, we see also God's mercy 
displayed here as well. So let's turn now to God's mercy. First of all, draw attention to the fact that God did not simply wipe Adam and Eve off the face of the earth immediately. We see God's mercy even in that. But there's more here. Look back at verse 15. Verse 15, where God addresses Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here in the cursing of Satan, there is the first promise in Scripture of a Redeemer. And this verse, as we have said many times before, is sometimes referred to as the proto-evangelium, or the first announcement of good news, the first announcement of the gospel. It is not a, an overly developed statement, but it is an initial seed that is planted that will grow and eventually come to full flower in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were here and remember back when we covered chapter 2, verse 4, we looked at the big picture of the book of Genesis and how it is arranged around these titles that begin with the phrase, these are the generations of. If you remember that, there's a number of these throughout Genesis and these begin new sections of the book. And they reveal to us that Genesis is about offspring. There is a promise of a particular individual who will bless the nations of the earth. And he will do this ultimately by defeating the serpent. And Genesis begins to gradually narrow the focus in on a particular family out of which this person will come. And we know that as we go on from Genesis through the rest of the Old Testament, it continues to narrow in. There will be a man who is not only from the people of Jacob, the people of Israel, but from the tribe of Judah specifically, and the line of David, who would come. And this is the first mention of this seed of the woman, the one who would defeat Satan. This reference to offspring here, or seed, can be taken as both plural or singular. And it is certainly true in both senses. Satan is at war with God's children throughout the ages. We see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in places like Revelation 12, where the dragon is in pursuit of God's people. But it is also, and most importantly and most significantly true, of an individual seed. There is an individual who will defeat the serpent and bruise his head. And we know, of course, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who would come and bruise the serpent's head. And it might not seem like there's a lot that's said here in, in verse 15. But in his commentary, Matthew Henry points out that this brief statement reveals a few things to us. Especially as we look back at it in light of what the New Testament says. And so we see here there is promise in seed form of the incarnation of Christ. We're told this is going to be an offspring of the woman. This is speaking of a man, a human being who would come. It also reveals to us Christ's suffering and death in the reference to the bruised heel. This offspring will be attacked, will receive injury. The forces of evil, we know, were aroused against the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his earthly life. 
And of course, when he was nailed to the cross at the hands of lawless men. But it also reveals to us his victory over Satan in that death as it delivers the bruising of Satan's head. The bruising of Christ's heel would bring about the bruising of Satan's head, ultimately his destruction. And Hebrews 2.14 says this very plainly and clearly. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, partook of the same things. It's saying he became man. He became truly man, truly human. That through death, that is through this act of having his heel bruised, through his death, that very act would be the destruction of Satan. He says that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he would come to bruise his head and merely his heel would be bruised. And again, in light of who we know the promised offspring spring to be, it is right to see all of this contained here in seed form in, in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the Old Testament develops this promise and continues to, to add clarity to that promise until the New Testament comes and the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, comes and is born of Mary, the seed of the woman. When Adam sinned and failed in this covenant of works with God, this grace that God shows was not something that had been promised or guaranteed. The covenant had been violated. Death was now to be there for Adam. This is God acting in his own mercy and kindness because this is his desire to do this. To not have this be the full end of mankind. God is enacting here his plan to redeem a people in and through his eternal son. We see God's mercy displayed here, even as the curse is being pronounced. Moreover, this text reveals that Adam grasped something of this in his response, and in, I think, what we should see as Adam's faith. Look at verse 20 again. The curse has been pronounced, and then it says, interestingly, the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. The most natural way to understand this being placed here at this point is that Adam grasps something of the promise that God has made in verse 15. They've just had this pronouncement of death upon them and this curse upon them. And so it would be very odd for Adam to now name his wife Eve. This is, a, I think, it best understood as a demonstration of his faith, that he understands this isn't going to be the end of all. There is going to be an offspring that comes from the woman that is going to fix this problem. And so he names Eve accordingly. The name Eve means life. And there's a play on the word living here. Sin has entered the world, but this is not the end. And Adam hears this and has some grasp of this. And he believes this. And so name is Eve appropriately in hope and in faith that though death has now come through their sin, she is yet to be the mother of all living. 
This is Adam's faith displayed here. And finally, verse 21. So we are considering God's mercy. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Again, we note the kindness of God. They now need clothing, and God gives them something far superior than that which they had made for themselves earlier. The loincloths of fig trees. God gives them a a garment here, that is a tunic, a long shirt, if you will, reaching to the knees or to the ankles. Here now is a proper garment for them, replacing that which they attempted to make for themselves. It properly now covers their nakedness, something that is now right and is now appropriate. They would now further be headed out into a harsh environment, the sin-cursed world. And they would need this kind of clothing, just as we do today. And so even as these garments that God gives to them, even as these garments would remind them that they have committed sin, and that's what makes these now necessary, so certainly they would remind them of their shame and their sinfulness, it is also still an aid to them, and a kindness from God, and a provision for them. We are told here specifically that God made these garments. Here in his providence, God provides for their needs. As for where these skins came from, one commentator says, Although the text does not specify that animals were slain to provide these coverings, it is a fair implication and one that likely would have been made by the Mosaic community where animal sacrifices were pervasive. It's saying it doesn't explicitly say here that animals were killed to make these skins, though it's saying these were garments of animal skins. But it is a fair implication to say that animals would have been sacrificed for this, and that's likely what Moses' original audience, the people of Israel, would have understood when he wrote Genesis, and they would have first heard it or read it. So in light of the necessity of the shedding of blood in light of sin, in light of the sacrificial system that is crucial to the Mosaic covenant that comes later, and in light of the prominence of animal sacrifices that we see even in Genesis prior to Sinai, and of course in light of Christ Jesus himself conquering Satan, sin, and death through his own sacrifice of himself as the ultimate Passover lamb, It is a logical conclusion that the first sacrifice occurs here and that this is yet another place where we see the death of Christ foreshadowed for us. That these animals are slain in the service of God providing a covering for the first couple who have sinned. So even as God is pronouncing and bringing to pass the curses of the covenant of works, He is also laying forth the promise of a Savior and a promise of the covenant of grace that that Savior will establish and formalize. And so again, we are reminded and we must understand that God is indeed severe in His judgments and in His justice. Too many want to rush past this and want to hear nothing of that. They just want a God who will love them and won't look too carefully But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the one true 
almighty and holy and omniscient God. That is a distortion of him. It is no trivial matter to sin against the holy and almighty creator of all things. And yet, we don't leave it there. We don't simply pronounce God's judgment upon sinners. There is more to know. For the God of the universe, who is infinitely perfect and severe in his judgment, is nevertheless a God who also delights to show mercy towards sinners. And isn't this our boast and our hope? Not that we have anything in ourselves to commend ourselves before God. Not that we are commendable because of our own uprightness of any sort or the things that we have attained and achieved. Are we not merely beggars showing other beggars where they might find bread? Are we not ourselves condemned convicts showing other convicts where and how they may too find mercy from the supreme judge of all? And he does show mercy and forgive all who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the long foretold offspring of the woman who would come. And he has indeed come. And he has spilled his own life's blood on behalf of sinners. And all who believe in him are forgiven by God because his justice is satisfied by his son. The serpent's head has been bruised and his final defeat is certain. He holds no power over the Lord's people, over those who are in Christ Jesus. Though he yet prowls, death itself is no longer the end for the Lord's people. One day, this earth will be released from this curse. And futility will be no more. The new heavens and new earth will be better than Eden. And all in Christ will dwell forever with our loving and saving and merciful God. Who remains ever and always yet holy and awesome. And the creator of all things who knows and sees all. This is what we look forward to by faith in Christ. This is what we hope for. And as we continue under the curse of sin and to live in an Ecclesiastes world as it still is now, and we feel the weight of that and we strive and we feel the pain in our bodies begin to decay and give way to death and as death occurs, and if the Lord's return continues to delay according to our timeline anyway all of this is just further reminder to us of just how serious sinfulness is and of just how kind God's mercy is to us and how great his power is that he would overcome all of this graciously for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ
So let's look ahead in hope of that day and with great longing for that day and labor now in hopefulness of that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do experience the trial and difficulty of living under this world that is justly under your curse. Father, we know that we have not only inherited guilt from Adam, but we we have participated in sin against you in our minds, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And we know that you have declared that the wages of sin is death, and we deserve death in every sense, in its fullness. We deserve your eternal wrath upon us. Yet, Father, we read in your word that you also show mercy to all who believe in your Son, that you have loved us first while we were yet sinners and helpless and at enmity with you. Father, help us to believe and to take you at your word and to trust that we stand complete with all that we need by faith in Christ Jesus. Father, do your good work in our hearts that we might be further sanctified, that we would love and long for righteousness in our own selves. Father, help us to go through our days in humility before you, understanding that the vanity of so much that occurs and the trials and difficulties is not something that is undeserved for us. Father, we deserve much worse, and that is the reality. Father, I pray that you would give us humility before you. And Father, we also cry out to you because our trials and difficulties are still that. We might deserve your judgment upon us and have it much, much better than we deserve, but we still face opposition. We still face great difficulty. The world and the devil still rage against you. And Father, we pray for your help and your deliverance. We pray for strength to stand, that we would make the good confession, come what may, that Christ would be upon our lips unashamedly. Father, we have no other hope but Christ. And so encourage us and strengthen us in that hope. Father, once more, we confess our sinfulness to you and we hold fast to Christ Jesus. We pray that you would help us through this week and remind us of your goodness to us. And as we once again come before your holiness and are exposed as sinners, may we ever and always look then to the Lord Jesus Christ and find hope and confidence there and see again your mercy. So, Father, help us in all of these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.